Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Ian Rickson. I'm a theatre director, and welcome to my podcast, What I Love. In all the time I've worked in the theatre, I've been lucky to meet some extraordinary artists. In this series, I speak with some of them in the silence of an empty theatre stage and ask them about three things that they love, a song, a film, and a piece of writing. I'm looking to discover why we especially cherish certain things and how we reveal ourselves through the things we love. There are few performers who can so deftly combine spellbinding singer-songwriting with a successful acting career. And there are fewer still who can do so with such poise and humility as Johnny Flynn. Johnny seems so inside the roles that he plays from dashing costume drama heroes to a young Albert Einstein and from Ian Fleming to David Bowie in the soon-to-be-released Stardust. I first worked with Johnny in 2010 on Jez Butterworth's play, Jerusalem. Ten years later, we met again on another stage at the Hackney Empire in East London. at the school who, you know, we'd all just suddenly, for the last two years, been getting to know each other through the school and everything, and she'd made this mixtape for the party. And she turned up, and we don't throw many, that yeah. many big parties, and I was so excited about the playlists, and, I, you know, I was making... I was, for months, I'd do it. And then the last <laughs> minute, she crashed and going, I've made a playlist for the party, and I couldn't say no, and it was all, like the killers and stuff that I just, it really took me out of it, you know? Yeah. And I, that was a moment that tested me. Yeah. Um, I had a similar moment where I was doing a play in the West End and on the opening night, Elizabeth Moss said, I've got the best song ever for us to have our pre-show okay. moment. And it was Queen, oh dear, We Are yeah. The Champions. Wow. And I had a little judgment in my head of, I'm sorry, but... Yeah. There's a line and you're crossing it. Did you but, say it? No, I didn't. Okay. Everyone loved it and sung okay. it. And I thought, actually, I get it. Yeah. I get the yeah. sort of um, pump yeah. rock, yeah. rousing, completely unfashionable yeah. major keyness of it. That's it. I think actors are also really good at lending themselves to things that aren't like the natural fit for themselves and what they do in there. You know, that's what you're doing all the time is jumping yeah, into another yeah, mindset. Yeah. And something like that is quite good, actually, for um, getting in the mode of playing, you know, yeah. you know yeah. moving there. What I thought I'd do with these episodes is, in the pandemic, feeling quite unsettled, like so many of us involved yeah. in the live arts, I would for my own selfish needs, feed off of things people I admire, things they loved. Mm -hmm. And the evocative nature of sitting in a theatre that is empty, and mm. we're here today in your borough, Hackney. Mm. Thanks in for the, coming Yeah, over. I wanted to make it easy for you. Really um, in the Hackney Empire, which, you know, 120 years old, beautiful heart of the community. Mm. And... I find it really meaningful mm. and therapeutic knowing somebody by what they love. And I know that you're, like me, introverted, shy. You probably are wincing when you have to do many interviews mm. and you've got to talk about your role or your family or the part. Mm -hmm. Here, mm -hmm. I'm just horse-whispering you into a place <laughs> of calm to yeah. say all you have to talk about are these three choices you've made. Yeah, yeah. And they don't have to be definitive. And it's just interesting to see mm. what happens when you employ the mediumship of letting these artists go through you. Yeah. I think that's why I've spent so long trying to kind of intuit and channel 
something that I'd be able to generously honour and hold up and connect with you over and all those things. So I, that's why I took <laughs> <laughs> over it. No, I love, I love it. And I love how it's not more than three things and it, these three different mediums as well. And I puzzled over the fact that I would choose a film which is actually a piece of music, really. Yeah. Or it's, it's, and the poem is a piece of music. I mean, I think that says a lot about my mindset. I kind of perceive everything through a musical. Yeah. Medium. Yes, because you could have chosen, let's start with the film, Don't right. Look Back, yeah. which is a... Had you seen it? I'd seen it a long time ago, but I properly watched it for this. And I've got the wow. transcript here. Oh, my and, God. Um, you went deep. I feel quite inside it. Yeah. It's a 1967 documentary by D.A. Pennybaker yeah. about Bob Dylan's 1965 tour yeah. of England. Yeah. And it's so ahead of its time as a piece of yeah. art because yeah. it's filmed in this fly-on-the-wall, fragmentary way where sometimes you think, why am I in this car with yeah. them? And then it How all starts here? to... Yeah. Exactly. It all starts to accumulate into mm. this very profound take on... An artist at a threshold moment, yeah. Bob Dylan, who is, you know, a well-known folk singer, but he's not a cultural mm. megastar yet. Mm. He's in the folk acoustic period, mm. and then when he returns, he's electric. Mm, mm, mm. And it's a vivid portrait of England, isn't it? Yeah. With the strange chorus of characters around Bob from... Yeah the high sheriff's wife yeah. to fangirls yeah. to promoters and tour bookers yeah, yeah. and then all the hangers-on. So it's very vivid, but yeah. I'm struck that you didn't choose a narrative film, yeah. but you, you chose this film. Yeah, well, I, I guess I think when I first sort of received it as a, you know, I was getting really into Dylan in my teens and somebody gave me a VHS of it or I found it in a charity shop or something and it, when you see what Bob is curating in this moment, consciously or unconsciously, and maybe doing that throughout his career, it is almost a piece of narrative fiction yeah. and the way it's put together and edited. And at the end, the way they credit people is almost like a, yeah. like a cast, isn't yeah. it? And um, I could have easily chosen the Brando film of Streetcar Named Desire or something, but I think for all the reasons that you said, this film and it's a groundbreaking film, is so interesting as a social document, because like you said, it's this perspective on England in 1965. You meet this really very weird island culture there with the sheriff's wife and, and these gorgeous people in Merseyside and, and places that are just, they're ecstatic about Dylan. And, and you're trying to think, do they, are they really getting it? Like, I don't know, it's this energy... Yeah, so I love it for that reason. I love it because it's my favourite Dylan period when he's just on the cusp of throwing it all away and chucking it back in people's faces when he plugged in his electric guitar at the Newport Folk Festival in a few months' time after the film's made. And there's something a bit punk about him at this point. He's getting pissed off with the projection that people uh, you know, have on him. He's written all this amazing poetry that has connected very profoundly to people, and yet he's going back to these people and saying, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I'm just a singer, you know? And it's like, oh, fuck. And that's such a generous thing to do when you think about it, because he's actually saying, it's all about you. You be you. Don't let me be a god to you. Fuck that, <laughs> you know? Mm. Which I, I think is actually a really responsible thing to do when people are starting to put you on a pedestal. You must identify with that yourself in terms of... He received this barrage of questions when he arrives at London Airport. Mm. Uh, Mr Dillon, what is mm. the meaning of your songs? Yeah. Mr Dillon, have you read the Bible? Yeah, yeah. And they're so aggressive. Yeah, and he yeah. arrives with this sort of inflatable light bulb and yeah. is very sort of playful yeah. and open. It reminds me of Feste or something. Like, Feste, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. But by the end... He feels to me that he's developed a kind of armour and a more misanthropic 
way of dealing with these intrusions. So mm. the film had a slightly tragic sort of lapsarian quality to me because I mm. see this sort of kid arrive mm. who's so sort of turned on with doing it. Mm. And, and at the beginning, I just was um, looking at the transcript. He says, you know, that he's genuinely worried about going insane. I'm just going to end up going insane faster than I eventually will go insane. And then by the end of the film, absolutely beleaguered by all these intrusions, mm. you know, some kid says to him... Um, but I thought I might have a word with you first. I mean, what is your whole attitude to life? I mean, when you meet somebody, what is your attitude towards mm. them? Mm. I don't like them. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, he says, what yeah. is applause? Bullshit. Yeah. So yeah. I had a sort of tragic arc. Yeah. But it feels to me, I'm imposing that on you because you watched it again and actually there's something defiant about where he ends up. Yeah. When I first was watching it pretty regularly, actually, there was a point where it was almost like once a week. I had a tiny... TV with a video player built in in my tiny room in this shared house, the first house away from home and school and everything. And I just had this, I had a couple of things. I had that and a Tascam four-track tape recorder. And I was, I was going quite deeply into his philosophy by studying it, really. And, you know, that bit with the kid at the end, when you watch it, and watching it again, I felt this... I felt like he's doing him a favour, you know? You feel mm. like he's quite a damaged, like, needy soul, mm. that guy. Mm. And he's helping him to get over this notion that, that the help he needs is outside of himself. That's that, great. In a way. And he's doing it quite generously. He's dancing around this person. Bob Newerth is in the background in that scene. He's Dylan's kind of friend and roadie yeah. and help. And he's quite a sardonic presence and he's mm. kicking in with all this stuff like mm. he's actually making it difficult for Dylan yes. to accomplish this mission yes. which I think I don't know I just have this faith that actually what he's doing the generosity with which he's always written songs means that there's always that spirit and Dylan has to save himself in each reinvention of himself in order to carry on giving mm. and yeah like you say he's really tired and really fed up with these projections and it's no wonder that he goes back and plugs in and, and says fuck you i'm not yours and, mm. and and this kid is um he kind of comes in wanting him to be um best friends with him or something yes and he's saying i don't i don't owe you anything but yes. you owe yourself everything yes so it's almost something biblical about his quest coming to this land yeah. and saying, no, it's in you. Yeah, which ironically makes him the prophet that he refuses to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I take that with a pinch of salt in the spirit of what he's trying to teach. So, Then there are these shards of performance which are shot really simply, yeah. which are breathtaking. They're incredible. And he's got the harmonica yeah. and the guitar playing is beautiful. It's really good, yeah. And he'll just... With no kind of banter, yeah. launch into yeah. the first song. Yeah. And I love the way the filmmaker placed those yeah. bits of live performance. Yeah. yeah, and you rarely get a whole song. There's nothing too reverential about the actual music playing. It's just snippets. And there's that bit where he's starting to play and the bit of drama is that the backstage people can't <laughs> plug the microphone yeah. in and he's, his vocal's coming yeah. out in silence. But he doesn't stop and restart. No. Once it comes on, there's a cheer from the crowd and it's four verses in and it's the times they're changing, which yeah. is like the song that yeah. they want to hear. Yeah. He doesn't give it to them again. And instead of being out front watching that, he's watching the people in the wings who are these very English people go, oh, is, should we plug that in? <laughs> you know? And um, I love all of that. I think it's just like one of those... It could be like a Ken Loach film mm. or something. You know, it's actually in that line of social yeah. documenting and this super American presence, this, you know, mythical American storyteller coming to England. There's something about that meeting of cultures. Yeah. And I've seen him play several times at the Royal Albert Hall and I love knowing in my body that moment from Don't Look Back where he walks onto the stage mm. and goes, wow, it's a really old theatre, <laughs> So I, I saw him in that space for the first time in this film and, and here I am watching him. He's come back for the... 55 end. years later. Yeah, yeah. And um, I love that. I love that journey that I've gone on with him. You know, he's the only person that I'm a true fan of in that way and I don't expect anything from him because, because of the film, you know, yeah. because of what I've learned. So 
You attracted him to you at an early moment in your life where you were playing the guitar, yeah. thinking about your own quest. Yeah. And I want to just compare an earlier guest on the series, uh-huh. Russell Brand. Okay. And he had the same sort of offering with his film, which was a Bill Hicks live. Wow. And Bill Hicks and Bob Dylan arrive on stage dressed in black on their own. Yeah. And the way... Bill Hicks functioned for Russell was a kind of inspiring elder mm-hmm. who could, uh, he would faithfully re-watch a VHS or mm. I think he'd recorded it mm. off of Channel 4. Mm-hmm. And um, you're saying Bob's gone through your life in a similar way, mm. like a kind of mm. river. Absolutely. It is a river. It's fine. I can definitely see the relationship between Bob and Bill. And I, I actually had the same thing with an or just an audio of a Bill Hicks show that I listened to a lot at one point in my life and it, it was something mystical yeah I've always attra- I've been attracted to that kind of monkey monkey crazy monkey wisdom uh, thing and you know I said Feste but in, in an early theatre production I was in a 12th night early on in my said post drama school thing Feste was the one I was mm. like I, I want to do that mm. um, and play that part mm. do you try and share that monkey mischievous spirit with your kids you've got three kids i do yeah and you take that quite seriously don't you the business of parenting yeah yeah absolutely being playful is one of my kind of central tenets with the kids and it's great when they're when they're really little you know that can be yeah just being animals and rolling around on the floor and surprising them making them laugh i think it's so fun and then they start to make me laugh and it all builds that sense of play. In the film, you know, Dylan coming into those early press conferences and they're asking these super serious questions and he's like, like why are you carrying a light bulb? <laughs> he's like, oh, always carry a light bulb and a good head, you know. <laughs> it's just kind of dancing around them. I mean, they're ridiculous. Those other people are ridiculous and he's just mocking it. I worry that the tour and the English class system and the machinery around how a great artist is received is caustic on him as well. And, you know, Joan Baez, mm. their last time together. Mm. And you often, you often see these women in the background, like yeah. Marianne Faithful rocks up, yeah. and they speak very little. Yeah. But there's a lovely moment about halfway through the film where you see what a muse Joan Baez is. She sings, mm. and Bob mm. listens, and mm. they do a bit of harmonising... I didn't pick up on the dynamic between them until I read pieces about that time and, and what was really going on between them. And the year before, she'd taken him on tour in England and he was very much, you know, still on the ascendancy. And he's, yeah, he's much more established when he comes back and he invites her on the tour but doesn't have her up on stage What do you him. make of that? It's hard. I think I wrestle with this kind of thing myself because he's following his instinct and I think... Oh, it's really hard. It seems like a, quite a brutal thing. He's never somebody who's bent to sympathy or kindness for the sake of his art and his muse. And, um, you know, I respect that. It, doesn't, I, I, it means that I'm not sure I'd be friends with him, <laughs> you know. But I imagine being the spearhead of a tour like that. Yeah. You've got to get on stage yeah. and do it. Yeah. And maybe yeah. the more feminine communal sharing of inviting Joan on yeah. is just not an option because you've got to do Sheffield tomorrow yeah. then you're on to Birmingham yeah yeah I think at this moment when he's the wave is receding before crashing with the electric albums and stuff I think he's kind of he's also rejecting that folk duo kind of they've done that a lot at Newport and I think he's too young almost to know how to handle that situation responsibly he probably should have said very kindly you know i think it's going to be like this and they they're semi-romantically linked as well so there's something a bit hard to watch about the way he's obviously just so focused on his writing and his stuff i find being on tour um really exhausting because i live in this constant state of anxiety about the show that's happening that night and i can enjoy it if i have very little distractions but now that i've got a wife and three kids sometimes they want to come for a night or two and of course I want to be that 
playful, you know, monkey man with the kids. And like, it's, it's hard. I've learned, it's taken me a long time, but I've learned to bring it all together and say, this is me and this is my whole life. This is my whole being. And if I rock up on stage a little bit flustered, let's share that because I've also built up a trust with the audience over years you know, even if it's a completely different audience to one that I played for before, but just in my relationship to an audience. So that's what I'm about now, is sharing where I'm at. But Dylan, I think, he's very young at this point. You know, I'm like 15 years older than he was at that point. And even though he's a wise soul, he's not necessarily a wise old body and brain at this point. You know, he's really young. And we all are inadvertently unkind when we're young. You know, we just, that's learned a lot of it. You know, we can be kind people, but sometimes we just don't know how to put two and two together. How did you grow into that place of when I come on stage, you're having an authentic me? Mm. That if your wife and kids are there, that creates a different Johnny. Yeah. If you're in Glasgow on your own, yeah. that's another one. How did you grow into that? I think because I've never been able to just turn it on, you know, even on stage in plays. I've never been the type of performer who has a, a place that they go to that is invincible. Mm. I always feel very vulnerable. Mm. And so I've had to go, okay, how do I work with this, you know, my body and my brain? And um, I actually learned quite a lot about that doing Jerusalem, the play that you directed because uh, towards the end of that run, you'd done it at the court and the West End and then you went to America and you came back and then I was one of two people that came into the cast at that point. I'd seen this play a year before and it was the best piece of theatre, best thing I'd ever seen, most transformative moment I'd ever had in a theatre and then was asked to join the cast. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but it was really, really scary and... Instead of getting used to it, that was the first play I'd ever done where it got more and more kind of overwhelming. And there was a lot of emotional zones in that cast and in that play and in that, uh, you know, and it was a moment, you know, culturally as well. And you could feel that it was sort of weirdly, it was like in the news all the time. Some friends were texting me and messaging me about everyone wanted to come see it. People were queuing around the block. We were taking like bottles of whiskey out to these people that were queuing for like two nights to get a day ticket. And all these people, idols were coming, you know, Mick Jagger was in the front row and Paul McCartney, you know. So it didn't get easier, it got harder. And there was one night where I, because um, I started to play in um, Hidden in the Sofa. And, uh, Sorry about spent, that. No, no, it's great. <laughs> it's actually a great... In terms of using what you have and just going like, no, this is what it is. I use any beginning to a play I have as like, this is your warm-up. You have to build your process into that space. And so my space to warm up and get my head psyched out was hunched in this ball, sometimes with severe cramp by the time I like, <laughs> jumped out. And then Mackenzie blasted an air horn and it's the morning after a night before a party and I jump out and then immediately have this like breathless speech which I loved because it was like, bang. But one night, because even though through my teens and 20s I've done a bit of theatre and been doing loads of gigs and been on tour a lot with the band, it did have a sort of invincible place then that was, even though I knew I was really shy and quite vulnerable, I just fucking gave it everything. And I just tried to put all my attention on the very pinnacle of the note that I was singing and on the tips of my fingers and made it this kind of spiritual practice and went into this zone. But doing Jerusalem was the first time where that started to slightly fail me. I think because of all the... Um, I was a new parent, wasn't getting much sleep and all that energy that I mentioned. And, and Mark was on quite a roller coaster ride himself having been at the centre of this story for, for such a long time and anyway I was hidden in this sofa because I was playing a kid that was a bit younger than I was so I meticulously wet shaved every night before going on and kind of have to be you know as baby faced as possible <laughs> and I cut myself quite badly on my neck and as I was about to come out from the sofa hunched inside the sofa I scratched the scab and it started to bleed a lot 
And I thought, oh my God, if I jump out of the sofa with blood pouring down my neck, it's going to freak everyone out. And I started desperately trying to mop it up. And it just, something went in my mind and I started, it, it triggered me. And I had like a panic attack. Anyway, the moment came. I was sure that there was a smear around my neck, but I was like, this is it, I just have to do it. And Mackenzie did the thing, and I jumped out and did the speech, did the first scene. It was a little bit nervy, but it wasn't a complete write-off. But I was sure that it was kind of noticeable, and I grabbed Mackenzie as we came off, and I was like, was that really weird? Was that really off? He was like, no, no, not at all, it was fine, absolutely fine. And I was like, could you hear anything before I jumped out? Because I felt like I was making a lot of noise. <laughs> Like, there was like a little bit of scratching, but I don't think the audience could hear it. And meanwhile, inside, I was like clinging onto the walls of this sofa, this tiny chamber carved into the sofa. But that moment created a neurological pathway for me that took several years to get over. And I had recurring stage fright after this time, and I had hypnotherapy, and it started to bleed into my my music, my my concerts, and my gigs. And then. What's emerged from that is actually better than it was before because instead of pushing myself to that place where I just have to be so focused and nothing else will do and giving everything to it, I try and sit back into a neutral position and I feel my feet on the ground and I go, this is the ground, these are the people and we're all here and we're going to share something. And I think that's a much more generous place to be in and a much more empathetic place to be in and every now and then I feel those nerves but I just allow them to be and it's kind of exciting now I know that anything could happen but anyway that's, that's a bit of a journey that I've hear. been on because I was asking myself what do your three offerings today have in common mm. and if we add your Jerusalem story mm. to it there's something about how can you be most fully present mm. and most fully yourself mm. in what you're doing. Mm. And as Bob elbows someone out of the way who's rabbiting on at him and goes on stage and plays an incredible song, mm. and you think about what we tried to build in Jerusalem, which is something very authentic and in the moment, and if someone slipped over, that would be part of the performance yeah. that night and if an understudy went on we'd feed yeah. off of that yeah and I guess Bob in that instance Mark Rylance Mackenzie Crook they all become teachers yeah to yeah. help us with our craft yeah. because it's traumatic going yeah. on stage yeah. yeah and coming to the poem which is Alice Oswald Dart it's very connected to Jerusalem isn't it mm. Jerusalem is this place that in the west country Dart is about the river Dart very close by and some of the cadences and rhythms have gone into Jerusalem, actually, and the next play, The River. So I was really thrilled to receive it from you. And, of course, it's like a play. Mm, mm. It's two years' work, like a verbatim piece mm. of theatre. She's mm. Alice Oswald has recorded all these different people along the river. And then through her own fantastic artistry, she's woven them into this kind of tapestry. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the piece, she didn't sit back and explain who any of the voices are. Um, in the text, there's a sort of side print where there's sometimes it says, you know, poacher or... Dairy worker. Schoolboy, yeah. yeah. And that's who that voice is at that moment. But they flow from one into the other and they're interlocking like the river, like the different stages of the river, and that's what it mirrors. It's a really beautiful piece I think what I love about it is it's a document like Jerusalem and like Don't Look Back of a very particular place and time. And I read that Alice Oswald had this idea that she wanted to reignite people's imagination about their place and their communities along the river, whether they're fishermen at the mouth or um, these um, bog walkers at the source and Cranmere Ditch, where it begins... So she walks the length of the river from source to sea and meets these people. And one of the, the cool thing, she records the conversations she has, but the first thing she does is go home and write down the conversations from memory without listening back to the recording. So it is all still through the filter of, of the poet. And then if she needs to check something, she listens to the recordings. But it is by her memory. And I'm, I'm obsessed with things being handed down 
the concept of things being passed on via people, via memory, and more recently via landscape. So this poem combines both of those things. You know, there's overarching kind of mythic characters that come out. This spirit, Jan Ku, he just kind of pipes up along the course of the river. Yeah, I, lo- I love it. I mean, it's such a beautiful thing to document a living thing like the river and connect all those communities who aren't aware of each other, but through the river have this connection. And yeah, it's connected to a lot of the books that I've been reading in the last 10 years. I kind of keep gravitating towards books that deal with specific sort of time and place and landscape. Robert McFarlane is Mm. one of my big heroes. He's a kind of soul brother of Alice Oswald, isn't he? Yeah. When you talk about being obsessed by what is passed on, how was Dart passed on to you? How did you receive it? That's a lovely sort of thing in my mind because I wrote this song, The Water, and that was partly inspired by a passage in the Tao Te Ching, this fourth-century Chinese spiritual text that I love. I carry it around with me sometimes and just flick it open. It's these sutras that are just great to, to muse on. It's a piece of poetry as well. And if you have a good translation, it really unlocks it. And um, I can recommend Stephen Mitchell's translation. It's really good. But there's this bit in one of the passages that is saying, basically, be like the water... It can flow through all things. It can assume any form, depending on the vessel that's containing it. It can be, um, you know, liquid. It can rise into the air and gas, and it can kind of freeze up and be this solid, rigid thing when it needs to be. And then it goes without even trying. (laughs) (laughs) And I loved that. It was Mm. a really simple way of... I applied that for a long time to my anxiety Mm. and that thing of just going, this is what I am. Mm. I'm inside this vessel now, the way my body is and the way this room is holding me and what I feel about you and what I feel about me and what I've done today and all of that, that's the shape that I'm in. And I wrote this song with that spirit in mind, but I was also thinking about a few people that I'd known who had died recently, two young people who'd taken their lives in the same week who I was really close to. So it was a really shocking kind of moment and I was trying to kind of manage that, understand it, and you can't understand it, but the song was an expression of this easing of the resistance that they had felt in being alive and a way of kind of expressing that and applying that thing of, yeah, this allegory of flowing down the river to the sea, which is what the poem is, which is what Dart is. Anyway, I wrote this song and... um, The Water... The Water, beautiful, which is a duet with Laura Marling, who's mm. a good friend. And it was a really... I, wrote, I really wanted it as well, the way the voices interlock, to be these two... There's no main part to it. It's these two kind of flowing voices and a male and a female voice to have this complete harmonic balance um, between the masculine and the feminine and to be like the eddies in a river that dance around each other. All that I have is a river quite clearly an allegory about dying and then lots of people like about five people gave me the poem and said you will love this and it was a lovely kind of exchange I mean I'm so lucky that that happens that I put something out into the world and these other things come back and my life is richer for all those moments but dark came to me like that and it was almost the first awakening to what I've now kind of seen as a very living movement in literature and art that encompasses Alice's work and um, Robert McFarlane and a few other people. So I'm really grateful 
to it for that. And obviously, Alice, I don't know her, and, and I don't, you know, she didn't imagine that that was what the poem would be. But it's, that's the beautiful thing about art. It shows these kind of mitochondrial networks through society and, and appears in very strange and brilliant places like that. So I'm grateful for that. Yes, it's a constant question for me. Do we find the art or does the art find us? Mm. And at that moment, I mean, you said of anxiety, but you could say the cycle of death and rebirth, you know, going back to Don't Look Back, mm. Bob kills a, a self mm. in that film. You mm. sort of feel it happening and a new self is mm. then born mm. like a phoenix. And your transition to a more Zen place, at least aspired to a Zen place, here I am. Yeah. And through that comes probably your most timeless, iconic song, The Water. Mm-hmm. And Alice Oswald with her poems in there as well. So yeah. it sounds almost too reductive what I'm saying, but I'm trying to create an idea of the symphonic psychology of art and the self yeah. and the community. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, nothing exists on its own, does it? And yeah, it's community. And words and art have that power, like they're extensions of people and they grow through people, don't they? And then they lock onto other ideas. And I think that's why why I do it and why I love storytelling. And Alice's whole thing of working with the people and then remembering what they've said I think in the age we live in, we rely on machines very often to store information. And, you know, I'm obsessed with traditional song and it's something that a group of people, you know, me included, are very keen to preserve a practice of just doing things by remembering them and by knowing them and then teaching them. And because a little bit of yourself is added each time and I'm... I'm scared of these things all just being kind of locked in these safes in the internet. The same thing happened like in the um, early 20th century with all the, the folk recordists people. When that technology emerged, they recorded these songs and a lot of them really believed that that was like they had to be just printed at that moment. And in the 50s, in that next folk revival, when people started performing those songs, they get upset if people innovated and it, no 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 that's that's always happened you know obviously the moment that you recorded the song was not the end of the line and there's this Marla quote that I love tradition is tending the flame not worshipping the ashes which is something that I hold on to brilliant so Alice is doing that with that spirit yeah I'd love to hear some <laughs> okay I mean I guess in terms of that cycle of death rebirth she chooses a canoeist doesn't she who i think has drowned right yeah and um yet she gives that canoeist voice yeah because i think we're in a pandemic here Mm. and there are all these theaters and no words are Mm. being spoken on them in fact in london today the only words that are going to be spoken are johnny's reading alice oswald (laughs) Well, it feels good to be keeping a torch burning in these spaces. Okay, here's a piece from the canoeist in Dart. But what I love is midweek between Dartmeet and Newbridge, kayaking down some inaccessible section between rocks and oaks in a valley gorge which walkers can't get at. You're utterly alone, abandoning everything at every instant yourself in continuous transition, twisting down a steep gradient, big bony boulders, water squeezing in between them, sumps and boils and stopper waves. Times when the river goes over a rock, it speeds up, it slaps into the slower water ahead of it and backs up on itself, literally curls over and you get white water sometimes as high as a bus or a house. Like last November, the river rose three or four foot in two hours, right into the fields, and I drove like mad to get to Newbridge. I could hear this roaring like some horrible revolving cylinder. I was getting into the river. I hadn't warmed up. It was still raining, and the surface looked mad, touchy, ready to slide over, and there was this fence underwater. A wave whacked me into it. 
Come falleth in my push you where it hurts, and let me rough you under. Be a laugh, and breathe me, please, in whole inhale. Come warmeth, I can out-canoeuvre you into the smallest small where it moils up and masses under the sluice gates. Put your head, it looks a good one, full of kiss, and known to those you love, Come roll it on my stones, come tongue in skull, come drinketh, come sleepeth. I was pinioned by the pressure, the whole river power of Dartmoor, not even five men pulling on a rope could shift me. It was one of those experiences. I was sideways, leaning upstream, a tattered shape in a perilous relationship with time. That's a good bit. (laughs) How does it feel letting it flow through you it's great to read you know i haven't ever read it out loud it's so musical i think those bits where it goes from prose into more of a verse form it's like the river you know when it we went in the summer we we hit this window of the travel corridor to go to france we've got a camper van and we went with an inflatable canoe and went down the dron river a lot as a family we could sometimes all get in the canoe in the dordogne and it mirrors that feeling of sometimes you come out into a wide pool of the river and there are a couple of, you know, swirling eddies, but you're just drifting and there's this serenity and the willows are kind of dipping in and then suddenly it narrows and there's two gorges and you have to choose which one and it's suddenly like, you know, you have to really kind of get your shit together. So it's like that and... I find it really haunting the image of the fence mm-hmm. uh, under the water because if you've ever walked in a field in a floodplain where that's been flooded over, that sense of things being buried that shouldn't be mm-hmm. is quite is really kind of terrifying. Mm-hmm. And I grew up by a river in Hampshire till I was about fourteen. I could see the river from my window, and rivers have always played this kind of important part of my imagination and. I could see it in the dark, glistening, and the moon was always sort of rising over it, so I could always see this kind of glint, and it was really beautiful, but always really quite scary as well. Mm. Um, So I love that bit. She never sentimentalises the river. No. It's unforgiving, but it's a source of meditation Mm. and depth of feeling, and I love how the poem enlivens every sense Mm. and every sensibility and allows you to be alone but Mm. fully alive. Absolutely, yeah. And I was thinking about your journey to playing in a theatre like this, the Hackney Empire, where you are on your own, but finding the right aloneness, you Mm. were sent away to school and that was probably quite Mm. traumatic when Mm. you were younger and Mm. that's a catastrophic aloneness Mm. and abandonment. Mm. But... The way you've talked today and something about Alice Oswald's poem creates an aloneness which is really like the Tao Te Ching that you mentioned, a very anchored aloneness. Yeah. Well, out of necessity, certainly through being sent away to school, but uh, to kind of build my community around myself, to be okay on my own, yeah, has become a practice and... You know, I just went off to this last week. I went to Rome for the film festival because the film that I'd done is there. And it's, it reminded me, oh, yeah, this is a lot of my life is getting on a bus, driving to this place on my own, getting a train, you know, with my guitar to some far-flung place. And there's a comfort that I get in, like, the journeying bit on my own, especially. Whereas, you know, I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't like to be kind of constantly sort of sent out but I like moving through environments and I have a very active imagination so I think as I pass through towns or whatever I or I go and meet a group of people in a place where I'm playing to them I can remember a trip that I made a couple of years ago down to Penzance and I didn't really know the promoter or any I'd been booked to play at this little art center there and they were going to put me up and I was going to have dinner you know all these strangers and I was so excited about going to this place and just meeting people for the first time and that sense of possibility about how you're going to interact with a, a new community, which is that same excitement you can see with 
Dillon landing in um, in England in in 1965 that then gets quite jaded quite quickly. The Alice Oswald. One of the reasons I bet you like it is. There's no main protagonist other than no. the river. It's a yeah. very kind of introverted, communal piece. Mm. Well, the river, you know, that's like the Tao Te Ching. You know, the river is really the shape. And yeah. the shape of the river in Dart is the people. Yeah. That was her idea, I think, is to remind those people that they are the river. Yeah. That that's how the river knows itself. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Can you talk about the shape, the structure, the artistry of your third choice, which is Sandy Denny's Who Knows Where the Time Goes? And to have a musician, writer, talk about another mm. is really interesting to me. This is the one that I really agonised over. I think especially because of our relationship and we, you know, over the years we've swapped these compilations and I love kind of giving you a smattering of, like, stuff that I've been into recently and stuff from the past that I think you might love and, you know. And then I, I kind of centred on this because actually in the constellation of where this song sits, there are all these interesting kind of elements for me. It's a really beautiful song and it definitely feels like a song written by a woman. Not to say that a man can write this song, but it's powerfully in the spirit of the feminine, I think. And I mean that in that there's a flow to it. There's an elegiac kind of lyricism to it that does belong to the feminine in an energetical nature. And it's a song written, she's 20 when she wrote the song I learned, and it's like the most nostalgic song Ever. So what, how does she summon up that sense of longing and missing things? And it's a beautiful song, first and foremost, and it's transmitted very clearly, I feel like. She's a consummate songwriter. And also, when you know the context for when it is recorded as well, it appears earlier than in that Fairport album, Unhalf Bricking, which is the version that I mentioned to you. But... She wrote it the year before, I think, and then they record it in 1969. And literally just as they're finishing the sessions for that album, they go and play a gig. And um, I don't think Sandy Denny was in the car. Well, she might have been, I'm not sure. But they're coming back from the gig and the driver falls asleep at the wheel and crashes and Richard Thompson, the guitarist's girlfriend, dies and the 19-year-old drummer dies in this car crash. And they've just recorded this song. So knowing that in the context is quite powerful. And I've heard them say, Richard Thompson say, that it felt like they just weren't going to get back off the floor from that. I mean, it's really hard to get over that. But actually they rally and they're kind of inspired by Dylan and the band, or they're massively into Dylan. A lot of songs on the on Half Breaking album are Dylan covers, which is one of the reasons that I thought of this song, because I'm... I see a parallel with Fairport and Sandy and what they're about in that second folk revival of the 60s in terms of being very much from England, British, and being steeped in those traditions, but being excited by another culture. And they're referencing blues and, and things that are coming over from America. And then what happens is after that car crash, the next album, Legion Leaf, 
that year the band's first album comes out music from big pink and it is so of its time and place a bit like dart is of its time and place and they are so turned on by that that they then write legion leaf as going deeply into where they are from which i think is a beautiful exchange it's much more english that album legion leaf it's much more in the english folk tradition albeit with a lot of innovation and instead of borrowing from the american thing they've gone that is really really cool that's so exciting what you've done at the height of psychedelia and all these things that are happening they've gone deeply into something that could be very unfashionable but it's an innovation by looking back into the past so anyway the, the band have always excited me for that reason and uh when we first started as a band I was discovering them around that point and realizing that this had happened what they were about and what we were about had a lot of parallels and wanted to be deeply from where I'm from and yet absorb and celebrate all the things that I've been exposed to but this song who knows where the time goes it's a ballad that is one of these standalone ballads which in itself these standalone ballads that are just brilliant songs that sense of innovation is also part of the tradition of songwriting to have these kind of talismanic songs that push things forward that are new but they're sort of in the tradition yeah across the evening sky all the birds are leaving but how can they know Time for them to go the end of the play you were in Jerusalem the playwright Jess Butterworth and I were in discussion about what song the kind of fairy puts on the record player and she then dances with the protagonist Johnny Byron and we alighted upon this song and then there was a whole debate like there are six versions at yeah. least that Sandy Denny recorded and yeah. of course there are all the cover versions too and um, you chose the Fairport Convention one and mm. Richard Thompson's there yeah, playing his little guitar. I think you had a, d- a demo for it because it's just Sandy, the one that yeah. you had. Yeah, the BBC session, yeah. which felt yeah. to me so pure yeah. and unadorned. I think that's totally right. For I loved hearing that every night. Rufus Wainwright, he said it's the saddest song ever written. And I think sometimes we place the arc of a singer's life onto their music. And Sandy Denny, it's the last song she ever sings live. She Mm -hmm. does a little fundraiser for her local village school in the West Country. She dies aged 31. But I listen to it and, you know, she's not alone while her love is near me. The birds will return. She has no fear of time. Then I thought, okay, is it that... The instrumentation is mm. melancholy, but it's in the key of E major, mm-hmm, and there's a lot of major yeah. chords in it. Yeah, yeah. You, it, is it sad to you and melancholy? It, there is definitely something innately mournful about it. I mean, the word, who knows where the time goes, immediately conjures this sense of things passing and passing away, and yet she's reminding herself in the verses that she doesn't have to be sad because the birds will come back. All the birds are leaving. That little dying... Yeah. All the birds are leaving. It is really mournful. Actually, the perspective for me is flipped from the one that you're saying. She's saying, I've got no reason to be sad. 
And yet, who knows where the time goes? These things are passing away and, and I'm passing through life and all the things that I love are changing. You know, which is not, not a perspective that I try and hold on to in life. And yet we all feel it and we can relate to it. And nowadays I can't hear it without perking a tear because of the play. And um, it was a really amazing and beautiful bubble to be in making that play. But even in the course of a single performance of that play, to live through Rooster's story was desperately sad as the character I'm in love with Rooster and what he stands for and I'm leaving for Australia as Lee and there's this sense of loss and all the things that you're leaving behind and so the song represented all those things for me and it's just before all these things collide for you know you talked about Dylan dying a death and then being reborn and Jez said to me I, I went and stayed with Jez for a week immediately after we finished the play we we both realized that we were alone with our kids and he was like come down to Devon and it was a lovely kind of putting to bed of the play for me which had been such a massive experience you know I was 25 or something and at that age when you do some uh, any play or film or anything it is so massive because it's relative in your experience it's one of only a few things that have changed you so much like that and meeting Mark was a huge thing for me to become a big mentor and possibly because of losing my dad at 18 and being away at boarding school I've gravitated towards usually these older male characters in my life that have become father figures and, and I'd, I'd done that with Mark a bit it was the right time for me to take on a teacher and he was a profound teacher in this art form which I was pursuing with renewed vigour, you know, being a student of acting and everything that he's about was so exciting for me and being in that play. I spent a lot of time walking with Jez with a baby strapped to my chest and um, he said this thing which reflects what you say about Dylan dying a death and don't look back which is that all good stories are about somebody facing a death and how they're going to rebirth themselves. Yeah, and I think everything you say about Sandy Denny, she then gets attracted to the play. The original song, the end of the play, just before Johnny Byron is beaten up, was Let It Bleed by the Rolling Stones. And that somehow felt too masculine Mm. and the wrong tone. Mm. And... I can't even remember whether it was Jez or I, but really I think it was Sandy who needed to come yeah. into the sensibility of the play there where you have a young woman and a man with threats all around them. Yeah. And somehow that short life with such amazing output of Sandy, Denny, allowed the play to transcend to a really yeah, it was profound place. And harrowing and the way you staged the fight when Rooster's being you think he might be beaten to death by Troy and and those guys. It happens over the song. And that masculine and feminine thing is... It's a brilliant piece of storytelling. I think it's the best-placed song I've ever seen in a narrative context. It's really... I hate putting recorded songs in plays because I feel it's borrowed power. Yeah. But that's the one time I feel it really punches its way to... Curatorial sort Mm. of artistic... Yeah, I, anyway, I, it's exciting to hear how that came about. And I also liked, in the, you know, talking about the constellation of the song and its connection for us, both in that combined experience, felt right for me. And you could play it, couldn't you, alongside Dart? Mm. It would be a good musical accompaniment. Yeah. And Sandy Denny is a key figure, isn't she? She is, yeah, and is often heralded as the best you know and I think all of these art forms every sphere of life has been dominated by men for a long time and I think it's really important to remember the feminine and and women and their voice in those forms and to not quite also correct but just like refocus your mind into what that spirit is and think of those figures which is another reason why it was important for Sandy to be there because she's been an important character in a band surrounded by men as well and 
And as Alice Oswald, who's such a singular voice, she's got all these classical references and and clear modern literature references, Joyce and all these people, but they're all men, and yet she's a woman. And rivers are, in a classical sense, heralded as a feminine natural presence and that sense of flow. And the flow of that song, which is, I suppose, why I can like reflect on it as something that I could have never written. You know, that belongs to Sandy, that belongs to a woman. To celebrate that, that aspect seems important. Johnny. Thank you. Oh, thank That's you. so intimate and searching and meaningful and uplifting. Oh, good. I loved it. It was really beautiful. What I Love was created and hosted by me, Ian Rickson. The theme music is by PJ Harvey. This episode was recorded at the Hackney Empire and was produced by Sarah Murray for Storyglass. And during our conversation, Johnny and I discussed the film Don't Look Back, directed by D.A. Pennybaker and produced by Leacock Pennybaker. The poem Dart by Alice Oswald, published by Faber and Faber. And the song Who Knows Where the Time Goes by Sandy Denny from Fairport Convention's album Unhalf Bricking on Island Records. And we also heard a clip from The Water by Johnny Flynn and performed by Johnny and Laura Marling on Transgressive Records. Thank you and see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.